church. Is everybody awake? I know you stayed up late watching the Indians. It was glorious. It was a beautiful thing. Hopefully we can finish it tonight. Yeah, but we'll see what happens. It is the Indians. It is Ohio. The thing that we have as our hope is that they have a longer history of failure than we do. So there we go. Um, our mission is that we want intimacy with God. If you're new to the ministry, we want you to have a deep relationship, a love relationship. And you heard a lot of love songs about just our relationship with him. But it's also about us with each other, that we want community. I want you to know tonight we're going to be doing something that's community-driven. We're going to be having a bonfire. My goal this year and the heart of the elders is that we would be strong together. And so this entire year, we're focusing on this idea of being strong together and having this sense of community. And so here's what we're going to do. It's going to rain a little bit this afternoon. It's going to clear up, and we're going to have a bonfire, a hayride. We're going to have treats for the kids. We're going to have cider. We're going to have hot dogs. We're going to have all the good fall stuff. But all we need right now is people. So, so far, I think we have like 20 people signed up, but we always wait to the last minute. So I want to encourage you on the way out so we can plan food appropriately tonight. Just sign up. Uh, just put your signature at the welcome table because we would like this to be just an awesome time together. Uh, do bring some lawn chairs so we, you can put it around the fire, and we're just going to have a great time. And we will get you out in time for you to get home in time for the Indians game. So you're going to have a great time, and it'll be a great time for us to be family. But our, also, our goal is to influence. And you heard some of the things that we're trying to do to influence our world. I think, as a church, that we could do at least 200 of these bags. Don't you think? You think that's possible? I think at least 200 of those bags. Why don't you overwhelm me in that little goal of mine? And, and if you want to surpass it, feel free to do so. But we want to take care of some of these children like Vivian. So let's, let's do that. Today we're going to talk about, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the idea of a work of reconciliation. So turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll get there in a minute. Now the word reconciliation is a pretty big word, but it is a word that is used probably about four different times in our passage, so it's really on the heart of God that we would have this ministry. Now we hear about uh, reconciliation in different ways in our world. We hear about racial reconciliation, and we need that. It's a huge need that's within our country that we would be reconciled between the nations, between different nationalities, different races. But that's not the only way that we need to be reconciled. We need to have marital reconciliation. We need to have family reconciliation. We need to have reconciliation in the workplace. We need political re uh, reconciliation. Would you not agree with that? The idea of reconciliation is two opposing, two opposing views coming together as one. But here's what I know from the scriptures. That this horizontal reconciliation, whatever form it takes, it can only go so deep unless there is this vertical reconciliation between man and God. Isaiah makes it very clear that sin has made a separation between man and God. And so what God has done in his love for us is he made a plan to take and cover that gap so that a holy God can grasp the arms of sinful man and become one with them 
but it comes by them accepting the free gift of salvation. This is what we're told in Romans 5.11. It says, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What a beautiful thing that God has provided that for us. And many people in here, you have had that reconciliation with the Holy God. But here's what's interesting. From a scriptural standpoint, those that have been reconciled vertically with God, it brings an enterprise for us. Not a financial business enterprise, but a spiritual enterprise for you and I. Because we're going to look in our passage today where God says, I am giving you, Christ follower, a ministry of reconciliation. You are now my ambassadors. You are the ambassador that I am entrusting with the good news, and I want you to be the agent that goes out and tells, introduces me to a world that is far from God. And so that's our job. So here's the question I want you to think about today. How willing are we truly to be God's ambassadors? How willing are we? Are we willing to share with others who are far from God how they can be reconciled with God? Many of us get really afraid about sharing our faith or introducing Jesus to other people. But I want us to think about that. That was a question that a guy named Samuel Zweimer thought about a long time ago. Now, Samuel is a dead guy. I'll tell you that. But he is a guy that we can learn from history because he did something amazing. In the, in the late 1900s, I'm sorry, late 1800s, he had the desire to go to Arabia to share the gospel to a Muslim world. And so in 1890, Samuel Zweimer went off to Arabia, and eventually he became known as the Apostle to Islam. And so he was used in a pretty big way over there. Now, it didn't come without any problems because he and a partner who went over with him, his name was James Cateen, they went with opposition. And the first opposition was just getting out of America. He went from mission board to mission board, and they all said, basically, you are crazy. You would be foolish, and this is a quote, you would be foolish to want to go to such a fanatical people. You'd be foolish to do that. And so Samuel, in response, said this, If God calls you and no one, no board, mission board, sends you, then bore a hole through the bore and go board and go anyways. And so he found a way to get there, and he spent 38 years working in Arabia, the Persian Gulf, Egypt, and Asia Minor. And it is reported that in the 38 years' time that he was there, only about 12 people came to faith in Christ. 12 people, 38 years. Not only was there little fruit in his ministry, but what we know is that there was so much opposition that was accompanied with him. One of the early partners that came over to join with him died of poisoning early on. About six, uh, six years into the mission, his brother came over and said, I will join you in the mission. And soon after that, he died. And then his wife, uh, Samuel and his wife, who had two children over there, both the children died of dysentery while they were over there. And yet Samuel pursued this. 
with all of his heart. In fact, he not only pursued it, he often journaled, and he wanted to get other people a part of the mission. Now, I can imagine people hearing what was happening to Samuel got to be, had been thinking, and hey, this is a bit of a hard sell, you know? Come over to die. What a great thing for us to do. But this is what he wrote in one of his journals. He says, the challenge of the unoccupied fields, meaning the unreached fields of the world, is one of great faith and therefore to great sacrifice. Our willingness to sacrifice for an enterprise is always in proportion to our faith in that enterprise. Faith has the genius of transforming the barely possible into the actual. Once men are dominated by the conviction that a thing must be done, they will stop at nothing until it is accomplished. We have our marching orders, and because our commander-in-chief is not absent but with us, the impossible becomes not only practical but imperative. That was a man of conviction. At the end of his life, someone came and interviewed Samuel, and he said, Listen, in light of the little fruit, in light of all the sacrifice of partners and people and your own children that die, was it worth it? And this is what he said. The sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly, I would do it all over again. Why could Samuel say such a thing? It was because he had as his life aspiration to do nothing but bring glory and honor to God and to be an ambassador for him of reconciliation to a lost world. It was deep within his heart. It was a conviction that permeated within him that he had nothing, he could do nothing but represent our great God and King. So what about us? Do we feel that deeply for our great God and King? God may not be calling you to go work in a Muslim nation. Maybe he might. But is he calling you right now to your neighbors, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your family members, to people around you in your circle of responsibility? And I believe we would all say yes. But are we doing it with our passion? That's what our passage is about today. Our passage is about our job of reconciliation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to remember where we came from. That there was a day that somebody, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, that came and loved us to Jesus. And they pointed us in the direction of understanding who you are. Lord, help us to know that we, our role in all of this and help us to see what you want of us. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. Our passage today is going to lay out three aspects of our work of reconciliation. The first one is the quality of our work. We have to have a foundation that's filled with quality. And then the substance of the message and then the appeal to be an ambassador. So let's start off with the quality of the work that we're to do. Turn to chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 13. Now, before we do, I want to set the context. I want you to keep two things in mind. First of all, Paul had just talked about how, how all believers are to go before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember that? If you were here last week, 
we said there's a judgment seat of Christ. Now, this was a good thing. It was kind of like that award ceremony that your kids, I know this is a very weak human illustration, but when you are as a parent, you see your kid, you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Jesus is the one who's given that reward, and he wants nothing more than to crown us for faithful obedience. It is a great thing. It is a reward time that God wants us to do. Now, what Paul's doing is launching off of that to show how we, how he is, and how we are to have an integrity type of ministry. Knowing that we're accountable to God, God says we have to have an integrity ministry. But all, here's the second thing I want you to keep in mind as we read this passage. Paul was under criticism. There were false teachers that were coming and criticizing him, and they were trying to make out Paul to be negligent and uncaring, and that he was just a worthless fellow. So keep that in mind as we read this passage, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known, known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now there's four things that, talk, that Paul talks about in terms of the quality of our work. And we can use that as a grid for our own life. Here's the first thing that we learn. Our work is to be filled with gratitude. You say, Steve, how does that, how do you see that? Well, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The word fear here is not a word of tremble or kind of a Halloween spooky type of thing. No, no, no. This fear is a fear of awe. It's a worship. It's a reverence. It is a gratitude for a God that intervened in his life. And Paul's saying, I am so grateful that God has intervened in my life. It drives me. It drives me to persuade others. And so that gives us our first quality, that our gratitude should drive us as an individual. Here's the second thing. It's a work of character. Notice that he appeals to the conscience of the believer. Why does he do that? He says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. He says that because there's all these attacks that are coming against Paul. And Paul's basically saying, you know me. I ministered among you. You knew how I did that, how I worked night and day, how I loved you with all of my heart. My character was right before you. You saw that. I appeal to your conscience. So it tells us that we have to be people of character in our jobs, in, in, in our neighborhoods. If people see our character, we stand out. Here's the third thing, that we're boastworthy. We're boastworthy. What's he talking about? He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again. In other words, I'm not trying to prop myself up. I'm not trying to boast. But here's what I am trying to do. I'm trying to give you a cause to boast. I'm not, but giving you cause to boast about us. I want you to have such confidence in us because of what you see in us. So that you will be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances. That's the enemy. That's the critics. And not about 
what is in the heart. The critics were like not focusing on heart issues. They were focusing on external issues. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You can see my love. You can see my love in, in, in interacting in your life. And that's what's boastworthy. And finally, he says, it's a work of truth. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it's for you. The phrase beside ourselves means to be insane. He's doing a play on words because that's exactly what his critics were saying. They were saying, Paul is insane. He's a crazy man. Don't listen to this guy. And he's like, no, no. If I'm insane, it's for your sake. And in all reality, he says, if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Right mind gives the idea that it's truth-centered. We're really truth-centered with you. And so what Paul has done is he's really defending himself, but there's an interesting thing that Paul does here. Notice in the passage he uses we, 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 we. Why is he doing that? Because he wants the Corinthians. He wants the reader. He wants all of us to understand that we are to have a quality of ministry. And that's the foundation of everything. In a sense, he sets up a matrix for us. So here's four questions for you to think about on a personal level. Number one, is our work driven by gratitude for God? Is our work for God driven by our gratitude? Number two, are we people of character in our work? Are we people of character? Can others boast? Number three, can others boast about how we are loving towards them? And number four, are we truth-centered people? See, there's an assumption that's made in these questions, and that is that we're all working for God. That may not be the case. We may not have that mindset. Now, some of you would say, well, Steve, i got to work for God. Uh, you're just going to add more to, to my to-do list. No, no, God's not saying that. He's saying, I want you to change the mindset that everything you do is working for him. What we do here on Sunday morning, you're working for him. Because you're coming, you're worshiping, you're encouraging other people, you're working for God. What you do outside, you're working for God in loving people through the workplace. We are showing quality and character. We are to be truth-centered individuals. All these things, gratitude, character, truth, love, it should permeate our life. But it tells us this. That who we are in private needs to be consistent with who we are in public. Because too often as believers, we have these secret little things that we allow to go on in our life. And God says, I'm not going to bless that. I want you, fathers, to be men of integrity in the dark and in the light consistently. What we do in our recreation should match who we are all the time. That's the quality. Now let's move on to the message. The message is a substantive message. Now here's what's cool. God says you're going to be my ambassadors, and I'm going to give you something that is an incredible message. In fact, it is the best message known to man. In business terms, it is the easy sell. Now, it's not really an easy sell because... It's not something we're selling at all. It is something that we are presenting to others as a free gift, but you get the idea. It is such an incredible message that 
anybody should want this if they understand what it's all about. And so this is what his message is. He says this in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Notice another emotion. We had the fear of Christ. Now we have the love of Christ. Controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore we have all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him and whose forsake he died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we will regard, uh, regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, keep in mind that fear was the driver, that awe, that worship, that, that gratitude for God. But now it's love. It's relationship. I love God. You don't have to tell me to tell you about my love for my wife because I will tell you anytime you want to know. You want to hear how we met. I got that love story. I shared it a couple weeks ago. Anytime you want to hear. Now, does that mean we don't have friction points? Does that mean that we don't get along at times? Well, sometimes that happens. But I love my wife. You don't have to get me to do much to brag about that. It's the same with our relationship with God. We love him. And so what he says is there's three things about this message that compels us. Here's the first thing. Christ's love was substitutionary. Let's understand what that means. It's a doctrinal term, substitutionary. He says this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. The theological, there's two parts here. That one died for all. Let's evaluate that first. That one has died for all. The key word is for. It is a preposition that means instead of or on, in behalf of. What Jesus did is he saw our need and he said, I will go to the cross for you. Now here's the idea behind it. We deserve punishment. We deserve death because of our sin. But because God saw us, he gladly took our place and said, no, I'm going to take the beatings for you. I'm going to be crucified on your behalf. That's the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's where he took my place, what I deserve. Now, this was done for all. The word all is misunderstood because some would say, well, all, you mean the entire world can come to faith in Christ? Yeah, it means that. It means all, Christ's blood is sufficient for all. Does that mean that everybody will come to Christ? No, it doesn't mean that. It's not universalism. It doesn't guarantee everybody would come to Christ. But he says it is sufficient for all. Now, here's the second part of the equation. Therefore, all died. When you put these two phrases together in the original language, this is how it would come out. Christ died for all who died in him. See, it implies that there's a choice. See, all of humanity can come to faith in Christ, but not all humanity will. Some will be presented with the truth in Christ and will walk away and say, I want nothing to do with it. We know that. Jesus said, narrow is the path that leads to life, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. We know many will reject that, and that breaks my heart. It breaks the heart of God. But for those that are willing to, in a sense, die to themselves, now it makes sense. 
Remember Jesus in his ministry? What did Jesus say all the time? You got to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What did he tell his disciples? He says, if any man want to come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his what? His cross. There's a death. You see, you cannot have salvation without a death to yourself. There has to be a repentance of I'm doing my thing my way. And God says, no, listen to me. This is the way it's to be. There is the turning to you and what you've done on the cross. And I have to accept, not only accept that, but realize it was for my sin. And my sin was grievous to God. And God says that's how we come in to his fold. Here's what you need to realize. Christianity, true Christianity, offers a free gift, and all other religions in the world do not. All other religions say, earn it. you got to earn it. Do you remember the scene, if you watch Saving Private Ryan at the very end, it was a story about a group of military guys that were going in to save this guy, Private Ryan, because three of his brothers had already died. And so he is on the bridge, and they finally find Private Ryan, and his whole company had been killed. And here we are, the Captain John, John Miller, says to Private Ryan, as he has holes in him and he's about to die, he pulls him close and he says, earn it. Earn it. I can understand him saying that. He's basically saying, do something for the sacrifice that was given to you. But here's the deal. That makes sense in the world. But what Jesus does is he is dying on the cross. He pulls you close and he says, you can't earn this. It's a gift for you, for you, for you. That's the message. This is the substitutionary atonement, and that's love. Now, it doesn't stop there because Christ's love is also transformative. Take a look at verse 15. He says, and he died for all that those that live might no longer live for themselves. We just talked about that. But for him who's for their sake died and was raised. Underline that phrase, and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Two parts of this verse in the idea of transformation. Yes, we are dead in our sins, but God says, come to me and die. But here's the beauty. He doesn't keep us dead. He raises us up to new life, and God begins a transformation process in every one of us. Romans 6, 18 says this. You have been set free from sin and have become a slave to righteousness. When we came to faith in Christ, we were set free. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we will live a sinless life? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we are no longer held captive by sin. Now that we are in Christ, we have the power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Friends, this is what takes wicked people and turns them into godly people. Now I want you to do something. I want you to look at the people around you. Just look at them. 
If it's your spouse, look at someone behind you. You see them all the time. Now, I just want you to look at them, and I want you to know that each person is a story. Each person is a story. Now, Bob, can I pick on you? I'm going to pick on Bob. Now, we look at Bob. He's neat, clean, short hair, has an occupation, loves his wife, loves his family. Is that true? Now, have you always been that way? He used to be a wicked person. Were you a wicked person? You were good at wicked. You were very good at wicked. See, the thing is, what we're seeing is down the road. We're seeing the refinement of Christ. We're seeing what God does to chisel away at an individual. But if we could only hear the stories in this very room, we would realize at the very core there is wicked. I want you to know I was a moralist. I believe that just being good would get you to God. And I want you to know, even as being a moralist, I was wicked in my heart because of my sin. God loves to transform. Now here's, what's, here's part two of this verse. He says, okay, God creates that transformation. And if he does that transformation, then we no longer regard people in the flesh. In other words, we're not going to look at the external. Because if we just look at the external, we would never get close enough. Earlier in your days, Bob, it was pretty rough, right? It was a little rough. Do you think, I mean, you beat up a few police uh, along the way, is that correct? I've heard a few Bob stories. So if you want some stories, get with Bob. It would be hard to get close to Bob. And we can make judgments based on the appearance and say, you know, I'm going to stay away from the likes of Bob. But praise God, somebody got close. Somebody got close. And here's what we got to do. What we learn here is that too often in Christianity, we look at the outward appearance and we distance ourselves because of their sin. And my friends, that's something that has to change in our mindset. We don't invite homosexual couples into our home because we feel their sin will defile us. We don't engage in the transgender person because we think in our mind that they're screwed up. Or we can list all kinds of other sins and say, I'm just going to keep you at arm's distance. What I would challenge you to do is to think about Jesus. He was the friend of who? Sinners. All people. See, I'm speaking of the church universal. The church universal is known for what we are against. And it is about time that we are known for what we are for. And what we are for is every single person mattering before God and that we are going to stop judging and we're going to start loving and we're going to help them understand this beautiful message of transformation because it has to happen from the inside out. It has to. That's what we're called to do. That's our mission that's in view. And we've got to keep it at the forefront of our mind. Christ's love was also regenerative. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And you know what this is doing? It's just saying that there's this work that the Holy Spirit does when he gets a hold of a heart, when a person confesses their love for Christ. 
there is this spirit-generated, spirit-empowered, spirit-protected life that God develops in someone who's a child of God. The old patterns, the old beliefs, the old values, they slowly go away and the new comes. And that's the beautiful thing about God. What he wants to do is regenerate us. Do we have temptations to dip back into the old? Yes, we can do that. But God will propel us forward because that's what his spirit wants. My friends, substitution, transformation, regeneration, this is a substantive message. Why would we not want all to experience this abundant life? Why? Of course we do. And so that leads us in conclusion to the appeal. This is the punchline. Let's do it quickly. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Four things in application as we're about to conclude the service that we are to do as an ambassador, as a, an ambassador of reconciliation. Here's four things to keep in mind. Number one, God has given you that ministry. Nobody else. God. But here's the beauty of this. In, ver, in this verse 18, he starts off by saying all of it's from God. What's he saying? He's saying the work of salvation is from God. Do you realize from beginning to end, the work of salvation is all God's? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the end, till, till Christ comes back. God began the work, He will end the work. So here's the idea. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to propel His name. He chooses to use you. Now some of you might say, well good, whew, Steve, I was starting to think that you were going to say that I need to represent, that I need to share the good news with Jesus Christ. Well, hold on, Sparky, okay, because there's something that God does want you to do. What God wants you to do is voluntarily represent him because of love, because of fear, because of awe and gratitude. See, put it this way on human terms. Let's just say that Jesus was right here. And he comes up to you and he says, I want you to know, Ben, I want you to know, Rebecca, I want you to know. And he goes to every single person. He says, come here. I'd like you to do me a favor. Well, anything, Lord, you died for me. I'll, I'll do anything. That's all I want you to do. Would you tell your neighbor that I love him? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, I would do anything, God, but you, I mean, I might mess up. I mean, I might fumble on my words. I might, I might just, I might freeze. You know, I might just, ah, I, don't, ah, I don't know what to say. You're making this much more complicated than it is. Just tell them I love them. Just testify to what you know. God gave us this ministry. Here's the second thing. God entrusted us with this message to go to the world. He says this, 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Two things, scope and entrustment. The scope is the world. Now, here's the deal. If we had a message of salvation, then there'd be no reason for missions. You know that? Because if it was a solution amongst many solutions, they'll find that solution in Ethiopia. They'll find that solution in Egypt. They'll find that solution in Thailand. They'll find it if it's a solution. But God isn't saying it's a solution. He's saying it's the solution. The only solution for sinful man is Jesus Christ. And since we have the solution, he says the scope is the world. And so this is why we support all these things. And my friends, when you give, when you give sacrificially, you give hilariously, you are supporting these works around the world. But understand the word entrustment as well. He's entrusted the message. Now just think about this for a second. Okay, when did God first think about this whole idea of salvation? We're told in 1 Timothy 1.9, it was in eternity past. So in eternity past, before the world even existed, he had it on his heart. Then he brings in Adam, it creates the world, Adam and Eve, Abraham, you know. And he basically starts through the prophets saying, there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a Messiah to handle the problem of man. And then finally, after thousands of years, the Messiah comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies on a cross. He goes in the grave. He's resurrected from the dead. And after he resurrects and he shows himself to many witnesses, over 500 witnesses, then he says, okay, I'm making you my ambassadors. Be my witnesses. He basically took all of that history, all of the divine plan of God, and packaged it up in this thing called the gospel, and he places it in your hands. And what do we do? Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm just going to stick it up here on the shelf for just a little bit, God, until I'm ready. Maybe in about 10 years, maybe in 20 years, I'll be ready to write. i got to know more. You know, God, i got to study it up. No, my friends, that message is entrusted to you and I right now. Right now. God's given us a title, ambassador. Ambassador is a representative. It is the person that goes before. And it says that this ambassador begs, pleads the case before a sinful world. And here's the last thing we know, is that we have a rock-solid message. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what I call the great paradox. So on one side, there is Jesus substituting, coming, and becoming sin for me. He dies on the cross for me. He took my place. But then on the second side is he imputes. He puts on. In theological terms, he gives us his righteousness. It is called the great exchange. The great exchange is this. I was filthy, I was wicked, I was far from God, I did all these things, evil thoughts, and God says, give it to me. I'll take all your evil thoughts, I'll take all your sinful actions, I will take everything you've done wrong in your life, 
I will pay the cost for it. And what I will do in exchange is I will give you all my righteousness. I will put it upon you and I will consider you holy. Why would anyone want to pass that up? It is a great exchange. As we close in prayer, I want us to think about a few things. Bow your heads right now. I want us to think about the kind of transformation that God wants to do in our own hearts. Maybe you need that relationship with Christ because you've never really given your life to him. I would encourage you to confess your sins, turn to God, and tell somebody. Maybe you need to be restored in your relationship with Christ. I would encourage you to confess your sins that you would turn to God and that you would tell somebody. Or maybe you need to respond to God's calling to be his ambassador, to have that urgency. Confess your sins of apathy. Turn to God. Let somebody know. Lord Jesus, you know where we're at. And I pray for the person specifically that needs a relationship with you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts right now. That they would confess, I've done wrong, God. I've messed up. And I want to die to myself today. I want to live for you. If that person's here, let me know. Raise your hand while everyone else is just with our heads bowed. If that's you right now, that you're like that, and you need that deeper relationship with God, you need that relationship. Thank you. Lord, hear our hearts. We turn to you. Lord, I also pray for those that need a restored relationship. I pray for that person that has not been approaching this life, is working for you, they're just kind of making it through this life. I lift them up. If that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray specifically for you. If you feel like I've just been coasting through. Yes. Anybody else? This is a time that we do business with God. Lord, you know what's going on in here. You see those that are responding. Lord, they confess their apathy and they turn to you. And Lord, maybe there are those that just need to up their commitment to being your ambassador. If that's you, raise your hand. Holy Spirit, do your work. Good morning, Mission View. Just a couple announcements before we let you go. Um, there, tonight is the Fall Family Fest at the Garmy Farm at, from 5 to 8, and we welcome you to join us. Um, if you are coming, we ask that you uh, sign up at the welcome table so we know who's coming and how much food to provide. Uh, and then next Sunday, November 6th, is the night of prayer. 
Um, we ask that you join us at the Mission View office for prayer as a church family from 6 to 7.30. Um, and ladies, we really encourage you to uh, participate in the IF tables. It's a really great opportunity to uh, meet other women at Mission View and really connect. Um, and there's a variety, I think there's three nights in November with a variety of times and days so that hopefully one matches your schedule. Okay. Uh, please join us in the comments and have a great day. And please keep your mission in view. I don't feel